The reading is called A Blessing by James Wright. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounds softly forth on the grass and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely. They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms, and for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white. Her mane falls wild on her forehead, and the light breeze moves me to caress her long hair. To caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. A few weeks ago, I was traveling with some friends in Poland. I doubt very seriously that I would have chosen Poland as my must-see places in the world, but um, my longtime friend Pam invited me and my partner to join her and her partner as she retraced her family root system. 
And I was in the privileged position of enough money and enough time to say yes. When people ask me about my trip, I say it was wonderful. Not because it was filled with outstanding vistas or awe-inspiring works of art. Instead, I find myself talking about these little vignettes of friendship, of friendliness. That's the only way I can characterize this trip. This trip was woven through and through with friendship, the deep friendship that abides between myself and my three family, my three traveling companions, and these little events of friendliness. So uh, here's a story I keep telling when people ask me about the trip. My companions and I had wheedled our way through the countryside to find this out-of-the-way little village called Hetchoff. Hetchoff is where Pam's grandmother was born and raised until she left an impoverished life and made her way to the United States as a teenager. There's not much there in Hetchoff, and there was probably even less in Grandma Anna's day. Hetchoff's claim to fame is the oldest wooden church in Europe. The church is beautiful with dark wooden walls painted with all kinds of designs and patterns, along with this huge rendering of Jesus' face. I've never seen anything like it. His nose was shaped by the Virgin Mary. Her dress puddles at the base, forming his nostrils. Her slender figure becomes the bridge of his nose. Her torso becomes his furrowed brow. Her up turned face turns into this orange-yellow brushing of enlightenment at the top of his forehead, and then her arms become his eyebrows. It is exquisite. This church is rustic and exquisite. Still, I don't think many people go there. Hetchoff is very much off the beaten path. So here we are, these four middle-aged American ladies walking around the wooden church and then walking up to the modern cathedral that's built on the hill above. And Kate, Pam's partner, says, maybe we should find the graveyard in town and see if we can find your family name. So after a bit of prodding, Pam decides to try. So now we are in a really remote place. And we are very off the beaten path, and nobody speaks English. And Pam has only a few phrases in Poland, Polish. Good day, thank you, please. A drinking phrase she used to say at her dad's bar. Here's to your health down my throat. And a few assorted swear words that are not going to get us very far with the nuns. <laughs> so, uh, so here's something I've observed over the years in, in travel. There's a kind of playfulness, a kind of silent agreement to practice friendliness among people who want to communicate but have no common words. 
In this case, some Polish pleasantries were exchanged. Hello, how are you? And then Pam says in Polish, I don't speak Polish, <laughs> which makes the nuns giggle. And then she launches off in English and spots of Polish, explaining that her mother's mother is from Hetchoff, because she couldn't remember how to say grandmother. Her mother's mother is from Hetchoff, and can they direct her to the graveyard to search for her family name? Oh, the nuns are concentrating so hard. They're leaning in, they're listening so intently for any piece of language or, or any idea they can grab onto. And there's a little altar boy and he's lighting the candles for the evening mass and he's trying to decide what does this woman want and, and how can I help her? And, and after a few minutes of, of just absolutely getting nowhere, Pam decides to go for broke in this playful, friendly relationship that's emerging. And, and this is what she does and I hope, dear God, I can do it without falling over laughing on the chancel. motions like this and they make motions like this and they like this and Pam realizes a bit crestfallen that they're talking about the stations of the cross that surround the cathedral and the wooden church and she smiles and she, she bows her head knowing they had not really understood but so grateful that these beautiful people had entered into this practice of friendliness. Now the four of us are milling around outside of the church, a little disappointed, but, but mainly enjoying the spontaneity of the moment and Pam's go for broke pantomime. And, and then the altar boy comes out of the side door of the cathedral with his bike. And Kate, who is the tech guru of the group, all of a sudden is digging in her purse. And she, she motions to the boy, please, please uh, wait. Please, she invites him, please wait. Please jump with me into this playful practice of friendliness once again. And he agrees. So she finds her Kindle and, and starts madly typing, looking for the translation program. Oh my God, it took so much time. So she's typing, typing away, and she finds a word, and she presses it, and it says, death. <laughs> death, she presses it again. And the boy's eyes light up. Oh, that's it. Yes, yes, he nods. Yes, yes, and he, he motions for us to follow him as he wheels his bike through the courtyard smiling. And then another boy appears on his bike, bike and the altar boy is gesticulating and talking very quickly. And, and then out of nowhere, there's about 10 Polish boys on their bikes, all making their way down the street with four American ladies trotting behind them. And we're, we're like an Italian movie in Poland. 
And we are all so joyful. We are just so happy because this practice of friendship has truly connected us in meaning. And the four of us, the four of us stepped over the barbed wire just like those travelers in the poem. We stepped over the barbed wire into the pasture, and the boys had come gladly out of the willows like the Indian ponies, all of us hardly able to contain our happiness. Down the street, past the bank, turn right, and there it is, the beautiful cemetery of Hetchoff in the field, way out behind the village, a place we would have never found on our own, something that required the practice of friendship, of real meeting. The great Jewish philosopher Martin Buber says, all real living is meeting. And that's what happened on that day. We were all meeting our whole and holy selves, meeting the whole and holy self of the boy and the nuns. I, I think it happened because there were very few words held in common. I think it happened because there, were, there was grace there, that, that thing that, that breaks into life and surprises us with goodness and a sense of blossoming. Buber calls this the I-thou relationship, the I-thou encounter. It is the world of relation, and it is powerful. It is I, whole and holy, confronted by thou, another whole and holy being. Now, sometimes when we hear the word confront, we hear it with a negative connotation, but Buber uses this word in its most positive sense. Each being, the I and the Tao and the thou, make no assumptions about the other. All parties are moving in the absolute present tense with one another. Each whole and holy being is met, is confronted by the other whole and holy being. Me and you, me and tree, us and boy, the men on the highway to Rochester, and the ponies who meet them in the field. The meeting may feel good, or it may feel hard, but the true meeting has taken place. I-thou relationship transforms both the I and the thou. The I-thou meeting transforms both the I and the thou. It is the spiritual foundation of friendship, and it is what we are called to practice as a religious body, the I-thou meeting. Sadly, our modern-day hurry-up, never-let-down life is not characterized by the I-thou relation. The majority of our lives are spent on another kind of interaction altogether, and it is what ails us as a people, as human beings. Buber calls it the I-it experience. 
This is how we move in life for the most part, making everything and everyone an it. It is something or someone we perceive. It is something or someone we parse out. It is something or someone we characterize, something or someone we make an object that we can then experience, that we can use. The problem is this, it's not relation. It does not mutually transform. The whole and the holy go unnoticed. The tree, the girl, the artwork, the river, the human being ceases to be thou in the encounter. So let me tell you about a workshop I attended in which I had a taste of the I-it encounter. It's, I have to say it feels a little small potatoes right now, but it is an experience that really made me think and come to a different understanding of, of things. So this January, a group called Embodied Deep Democracy held a workshop in which we explored as a group of 75 people or so ways to tend to difference and tap into conflict as a means to wholeness. Sounds good. A majority of the attendees and all the facilitators were people of color, and I knew from the get-go that this was going to be powerful. After a day or so of lecture, though, embodiment exercise and, and awareness work, many of us were a little bit fuzzy on the method or the framework of the technique and how are we going to bring this back to our communities. And there was a, a growing tension in the group between how, how we should proceed. So at one point, I, I raised my hand and I said, I'm new to this and I'm trying to get my head around what this particular term means. Can you talk a little bit about that? And the facilitator addressed me with a well-meaning smile. Some of us are more comfortable with linear thinking, she said, meaning me. But let's just keep going. I ask you to just go with it. Other of us are more comfortable with circular thinking. So all eyes are on me at that point, and a couple of frowns, like, get with the program. And I felt so red. <laughs> that could have been timed any better. I felt very red. felt a little embarrassed <laughs> for asking the question. And I said something like, oh, sure, sure, fine, no problem. And internally, I kind of giggled because I thought, oh, if you only knew how unlinear I am, <laughs> you would be amazed. As the first Universalist staff can attest, I'm kind of like this. Let's start with F. 
Yeah, yeah, let's start with F and remember that F is always informed by B, but B always leads us to T. Yeah, and T, oh, T, T brings us to this great coherence between M, D, and V. Oh, yeah, it's going to be so great. <laughs> A very rarely leads to B in this brain. So I'm wondering, what should I do? Should I ask the question again? Should I talk to the facilitator to the side and try to explain myself or try to address the group about, ah, I'm a little confused or what am I doing? And I just stopped. I just stopped and decided to sit with this experience just sit with being encountered as an it. I was an it. I'm pretty sure the facilitator looked at me and made some characterizations. She saw white woman, middle-aged woman, and thought, linear thinker. That is the I-it dynamic. And I really wanted to experience my itness. I wanted to experience how it made me feel, how it kind of hurt, how anger rose up in me, how it shaped my movement in the group, how I wanted to step back rather than forward, how it knocked me off my balance a bit, how it was hard to maintain my vow. I wanted to feel this because this is what most of my brothers and sisters of color talk about experiencing every day. The spiritual fortitude that they have to muster in order to sustain thou to be in I-thou relationship with themselves, their families, friends, and the worlds in which they walk. In this racialized society of ours, the first way we make people its is categorizing one another by the color of our skin. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. We're all in this racist soup of a culture together. The tragedy of this, our United States, is that the color of your skin, this characterization, this way of perceiving one another, absolutely shapes our life chances. Some to great advantage and others to such disadvantage. And I keep thinking about this I-it relationship when I hear about the Trayvon Martin case. We all become its in this dynamic. The I-it encounter is devoid of spirit. It is the foundation of exploitation, of misunderstanding, of oppression, and environmental degradation. The oak tree, the altar boy, the shale laid in earth, the African-American girl, 
the transgender boy, are something to be experienced, perceived, and in a way, used. Much like Richard's example of the adopting family who just wants the girl, disregarding the thou of brothers, of parents lost, of American history. I want to make this clear, all of us are capable, all are in fact longing for the I-thou relation, the spirit-filled relation, whether we know it or not. All of us are capable, are in fact caught up in a culture of the I-it experience, and it's killing us. One of the things I've come to deeply appreciate about the religious life, about this church, and other liberal religious traditions who are swinging their doors open wide is that again and again we are lifting up the I-thou relation, the spirit-filled relationship. It is such a countercultural move. How can I, a whole and holy being, truly meet the whole and holy being of thou? of you, of river, of bird, of earth, of sky. When we say we welcome, affirm, and protect the light in each human heart, we are talking about thou. When we say we act for justice and equality, we are talking about our intention to reshape the world. We want to live in a more I-thou world than an I-it world. Our anti-racism, racial justice work, our Habitat for Humanity house, our budding relationship with the avenues for homeless youth is the embodiment of our longing to truly meet thou. When we say we listen with our whole beings to where love is calling us next, we are remembering, we are claiming a faith posture in the world, a faith that we are not alone in this, that there is a movement of good and grace alive and living in the world, and we ask to be awakened again and again into that movement, that rhythm of grace. My friends, I am holding hope today. My friends, I'm holding so much longing, longing. I have faith. I have faith that I will meet thou. And the world indeed will change. May it be so. And amen.